Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. How are you all doing? Alhamdulillah. A'udhu billahi min ash-shaytan ar-rajim. Bismillahir rahmanir rahim. Wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulihil kareem. Rabbish rahli sadri wa yassirli amri wahlul uqdatan min lisani yafqahu qawli. Allahumma ahdi qalbi wa saddid lisani wasrul sakhimata qalbi. Amin ya rabbil alameen. Inshallah we'll look at bab kharsi tamri. Kharsi tamr. Kharsit Tamil, estimating a quantity of dates. Basically, the word kharus is to guess or to conjecture. In the Quran also, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that they are yakhrusun, they're only guessing. And kharus is basically that when a person looks at, for example, an orchard okay, of trees and they have fruits on them. So on seeing the fruit on the trees, he estimates that this is going to be approximately these many kilos. You understand? So it's basically conjectural computation of the quantity of fruit which is on the trees. Now, this doesn't mean that people are just randomly guessing. I mean, of course, a person has some level of experience and knowledge based on which he will predict that, okay, this shows that you know, these trees will produce this amount of dates. Okay? So this is known as khars. So khars tamr estimating a quantity of dates. And this would be because, remember that the zakat collectors have to go and they have to estimate the worth of people's wealth and also calculate the zakat that is due on people's wealth. Because everybody cannot be expected to know the details of how to calculate zakat. So zakat collectors are required to go and do that. So sometimes what a person would do is, what a sultan, what a Muslim leader would do is that he would send zakat collectors in advance to go and see how much zakat will be expected from this area and how much zakat can be expected from that area. And this is of course based in the sunnah. And this is the reason why Imam Bukhari is bringing this over here to prove that this is from the sunnah. This is not wrong. Because remember that something about the future, all right, we're not supposed to delve into that. Correct? Like you're not supposed to predict the future. This is a part of the unseen and that is something that only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows. But this is not incorrect because you can see the dates, right? You can see the health of the trees and based on the amount of rain that has come and how the trees look, you can have a good estimation of what to expect. So, and of course this is done before harvest. Now, a little bit about zakat on dates before we actually go into the ahadith. So when it comes to zakat on dates, remember that this is part of zakat on fruits. When it comes to produce, then remember that zakat is due on fruits as well as crops. So it is due on simar and secondly, zurur. Simar are fruits and zurur are crops. Okay. Now when it comes to fruits, which fruits is zakat due on? Zakat is only due on fruits that can be measured and stored. Okay? Measured and stored. Which fruits can be stored? Which fruits? No, no. Stored in the sense that you can keep them for months and months. You don't need refrigeration. Okay, good. Dried fruits. What else? Okay. Uh, nuts. Okay. What else? What about dates? What about grapes? Because they can be turned into raisins. Right? So the Hanabila... The Hanbali school of thought, they say that all fruits which can be measured and stored, such as dates, raisins, almonds, pistachios, alright, so dried fruit also comes in this category. However, 
fruits that cannot be measured and stored, there is no zakat on them. So apples, oranges, melons, tomatoes, even vegetables that cannot be stored. I mean, they cannot be stored. Even pumpkins, you know, you can only keep them for some time. You cannot exactly store them. They will spoil very quickly, so there is no zakat on that. The Shafi'i school of thought is more restrictive in this. They say that zakat is only on two types of fruits, which are dates and grapes. All right, Because you see, the point of zakat on fruit is so that the poor actually get fruit to eat. They actually get food to eat. When you give a poor person almonds, it's not really going to help him. right? But if you give him dates, it will benefit him a lot, even raisins. Now the question is that what if a person has fruits, like for example, apples, oranges and stuff for sale? Let's say he buys them and he sells them, then what? then it'll be treated as as profit, zakat on profit. Meaning if he has the profit sitting for one year, meaning the amount of profit that he has sitting for one year, that is uh, the zakat that he will give on. And that will be treated like any other money. Now, when it comes to zakat on zurur, on crops, which crops? This is the crops which are staple. So staple food crop. Again, staple food crop which can be measured and stored. Okay, so you're talking about grains. So which kind of grains? Wheat, barley, rice. So these kind of grains. Sheikh ibn Uthaymeen says, Zakat must be paid on grains and fruits on condition that they can be measured and stored. And if that is not the case, then no zakat is due on them. However, others do suggest that if you have, for example, an orchard of apples, of apple trees, oranges, so on and so forth, then even though zakat is not due on them, still something should be given out of it as charity. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, That give of its right on the day of harvest. Meaning, enjoy these foods that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala produces for you from the earth, and then also give some of it to those who are needy. Now, one thing that must be remembered about the crops, okay, this is about the crops and not the fruit, that the crops must be sown by people. Zakat is owed on crop that humans cultivate. All right, It is not due on crop that grows without people planting and caring for them. Clear? Now which fruit and crop zakat is due on? Now the question is, when is zakat due on fruit and agriculture? When? Is this after a year? No. The zakat on simar and zurur is at the time of harvest. Okay? It is at the time of harvest. It's not after you've stored them for a whole year. And it's not necessary that the year should pass because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, What is the nisab? What is the bare minimum amount of harvest that a person should have of the simar and zurur so that zakah will be due on them? We learn... And this will come later on also, but just so that you have all the numbers down in one place. So the nisab for uh, zurur and simar is the same, which is five awsuq. Five awsuq. Meaning if a person harvests more than five awsuq of dates, of grapes, of grain, then they have to give zakat. Now, what exactly is five awsuq? How much is one wasaq? I'm not going to go into that because it gets complicated. All right. What I'm going to tell you is the amount of five osuk in kilograms. 
Okay? And that is 609.84 kilograms. So if a person is harvesting 609.84. So if a person has, for example, an orchard of date palms and then they have, let's say, 700 kilos of dates. Is zakat due on that? Yes. What if they have 500 kilos of dates? No, no zakat on that. And when it comes to grain, then remember that the grain must be cleaned, meaning the husk or the shell should be removed, and then the grain should be weighed. You understand? So it's only the seeds which should be weighed, and if it reaches the nisab, 600 kilograms, only then zakat will be given. Now the question is, how much zakat is given? How much zakat is given on this? Now it depends. It depends on how the crop or the trees were watered. How were they irrigated? If the crop or the trees were irrigated naturally, naturally as in by rain, flooding, then the zakat is 10%. And that is called ushr, which inshallah we'll look at. However, if the land was irrigated by human intervention, like for example, you're using animals to bring water in buckets and then you dump that, all right? Or you have some other kind of irrigation where you have some kind of pump, some mechanical or electrical, then the zakat is 5%. Even if a person has to go bring the water himself because there's human toil over there, then the zakat will be 5%. You understand? So if it's naturally irrigated without human intervention, there's no toil whatsoever, then how much zakat? 10%. And if there is human toil, then how much? 5%. But what if it's a mix of both? Excellent. If it's a mix of both, then it's 7.5%. Meaning half the time you depend on rains and half the time you have to water it yourself, then it's 7.5%. So this is the overview of zakat on fruits and crops. حدثنا سهل بن بكار حدثنا بوهيب عن عمر بن يحيى عن عباس الساعدي عن أبي حميد الساعدي قال غزونا مع النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم غزوة تبوك. Very interesting hadith. Abu Humayd al-Sa'idi says that we went on a ghazwa with the Prophet ﷺ, which ghazwa was this? It was the ghazwa of Tabuk. Alright, ghazawna from ghazwa. فَلَمَّا جَاءَ وَادِيَ الْقُرَى When we reached an area called Wadi Al-Qura, over there, إِذَا امْرَأَةٌ فِي حَدِيقَةٍ لَهَا There was a woman who was in her garden. فَقَالَ نَبِيُّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ لِأَصْحَابِهِ So the Prophet ﷺ said to his companions, أُخْرُصُوا Estimate Alright, and this is where the word khars is coming from. Estimate, meaning what do you think, how much dates can be harvested from these trees. وَخَرَصَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ عَشَرَةَ أَوْ سُقٍ And the Prophet ﷺ estimated that it would be ten أَوْ فَقَالَ لَهَا And he said to that woman that أَحْصِي مَا يَخْرُجُ مِنْهَا Make sure you calculate what you Harvest from here. فَلَمَّا أَتَيْنَا تَبُوكَ Then when we reached Tabuk, قَالَ The Prophet ﷺ said, أَمَا إِنَّهَا سَتَهُبُّ اللَّيْلَةَ رِيحٌ شَدِيدَةٌ 
Tonight there will be a very strong wind that will blow. فَلَا يَقُومَنَّ أَحَدٌ So no one should stand. وَمَنْ كَانَ مَعَهُ بَعِيرٌ And whoever has a camel, فَلْيَعْقِلْهُ Then he should tie that camel. فَعَقَلْنَاهَا So we tied our camels. وَهَبَّتْ رِيحٌ شَدِيدَةٌ And the strong wind blew. فَقَامَ رَجُلٌ Then a man stood. فَأَلْقَتْهُ بِجَبَلِ الطَّيِّئِ So the wind threw him, meaning it picked him up and threw him on this mountain. Jabal Tayyip. And then at Tabuk, what else happened? وَأَهْدَى مَلِكُ أَيْلَةَ And the king of Ayla sent a gift to لِلنَّبِي صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ To the Prophet صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ See the word أَهْدَى is from Hadiyah. Hadiyah is a gift. Hidayah is also from the same root. Because a hadiyah, a gift is, you know, it goes from one person to the other. It transfers, right? And hidayah is also what? That a person goes from one state to another. So, وَأَهْدَى مَلِكُ أَيْلَةَ لِلنَّبِيِّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ بَغْلَةً بَيْضَاءً He sent him a white mule as a gift. وَكَسَاهُ بُرْدًا And he also gave him the gift of a burd, of a certain shawl. وَكَتَبَ لَهُ بِبَحْرِهِمْ And he also wrote to him. فَلَمَّا أَتَى وَادِيَ الْقُرَى Then when the Prophet ﷺ on the return journey from Tabuk, when he reached Wadi Al-Qura, back on the same route, when he reached Wadi Al-Qura, قَالَ لِلْمَرْأَةِ He said to the woman, كَمْ جَاءَ حَدِيقَتُكْ How much did your garden produce? Meaning how many dates, what is the quantity of the dates that you actually harvested? قَالَتْ عَشْرَةَ أَوْسُقٍ She said ten أَوْسُقْ And that was the exact estimation of the Prophet ﷺ. خَرْصَ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَسَلَّمُ فَقَالَ نَبِيُّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَسَلَّمُ Then the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم said to the people that إِنِّي مُتَعَجِّلٌ إِلَى الْمَدِينَةِ I am going to go quickly to Medina. فَمَنْ أَرَادَ مِنْكُمْ أَنْ يَتَعَجَّلَ مَعِي فَلْيَتَعَجَّلُ So whoever wants to go quickly with me should come quickly. فَلَمَّا قَالَ ابْنُ بَكَّارَ that when he saw Medina, meaning from a distance he could see it, قَالَ He said, هَذِهِ طَابَة This is طَابَة طَابَة is another name of Medina. فَلَمَّا رَأَى أُحُدًا And then when he saw Uhud, قَالَ He said, هَذَا جُبَيْلٌ This is a mountain يُحِبُّنَا وَنُحِبُّهُ It loves us and we love it. أَلَا أُخْبِرُكُمْ بِخَيْرِ دُورِ الْأَنصَارِ Shall I inform you of the best households of the Ansar? قَالُوا They said, بَلَا Yes, O Messenger of Allah, tell us. قَالَ He said, دُورُ بَنِ النَّجَّارِ The household of the Banu al-Najjar. ثُمَّ دُورُ بَنِ عَبْدِ الْأَشْهَلِ Then, the next best are the Banu Abdul Ashhal. ثُمَّ دُورُ بَنِ سَاعِدَ Then the next best are, is the household of Banu Sa'ida. أو دور بن الحارث بن الخزرج. And then he said, وفي كل دور الأنصار يعني خير. And in every household of the Ansar is good. Meaning all of them are really good. Beautiful hadith gives us a glimpse of how the Prophet ﷺ traveled. Remember that, actually, let me just read the next part also and then we'll go over the whole thing together. 
وقال سليمان بن بلال حدثني عمر ثم دار بن الحارث ثم بني سعيدة وقال سليمان عن سعد بن سعيد عن عمارة بن غزية عن عباس عن أبيه عن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم قال Imam Bukhari brings another narration and he says Uhudun jabalun yuhibbuna wa nuhibbuhu In another narration the Prophet wasallam said Uhud is a jabal, a mountain that loves us and we love it قال أبو عبد الله إمام بخاري says كل بستان عليه حائط فهو حديقة Every garden that has a wall meaning that is walled then a walled garden is called a حديقة Alright? Because remember the word used for the garden was حديقة in the hadith So Imam Bukhari is explaining the vocabulary here وَمَا لَمْ يَكُنْ عَلَيْهِ حائط لَمْ يَقُلْ حَدِيقَ And the garden that is not walled is not called a حديقة Alright, so in this hadith we learn about the expedition of Tabuk and the reason why Imam Bukhari brings this hadith over here is to show that the Prophet ﷺ did khars of the trees, of the fruit of that particular garden. So this means that estimating the amount or the quantity of fruit is permissible. Now, Ghazwa Tabuk is also called Ghazwa Usra. Usra means extreme difficulty. So this was an expedition that was extremely difficult for the Muslims. It was in the month of Rajab, ninth year after Hijrah. And the reason for this expedition was that by this time, remember that the Muslims had conquered Mecca. Ta'if had also been conquered. And the only real threat now that the Muslims had was from the northern tribes that bordered with the Romans. And there was a constant threat that they would come and attack the Muslims. And this was a real threat. And the Prophet ﷺ decided to march over there and to either make peace with them or cause them to surrender. Remember that the journey was very long. It was very difficult. It was also harvest season, which is very evident from this narration because the trees were already producing fruit and the fruit was such that it was big enough that you could estimate how much was going to be harvested. So you can imagine it's harvest season in Najd, in the desert of Arabia. It was extremely hot and this is why this army was called Jaishul Usra. This is the time when Abu Bakr anhu brought everything that he had. You know what the story where the Prophet ﷺ encouraged people to bring charity and Abu Bakr who brought everything? This was the occasion. And how much did Umar who bring? Half of everything. And he thought that he would finally beat Abu Bakr who this time, but he wasn't able to. We learn about some other companions who worked all day long, who would work, they would basically water the fields, carrying buckets of water, watering the fields. And then by the end of the day, they would only make a handful of dates. That was their day's earning. And one of them brought that to the Prophet wasallam, and the Prophet wasallam piled that on top of everything else that had been given as donation. And the hypocrites mocked at the Muslims for that, that you're going to go fight the Romans with this handful of dates. So this is the occasion. It is said that there were at least 10,000 Muslims, so the army was huge. All right, And it's called the Ghazwa of Tabuk because... The Muslims went to Tabuk. The Prophet ﷺ reached Tabuk and that's where he camped. Tabuk is actually the name of a spring. Okay? It's actually the name of a spring. And it was at that time a very thin flow of water. And it's described as a shoelace. 
So you're talking about a trickle. And when the Prophet ﷺ reached there, he made wudu from it. They managed to collect the water, however they could. And he made wudu there. And from there, a lot of water gushed forth. And Mu'adh radiallahu anhu, he narrated this. And he said when narrating that it is hoped that if you live long, you will see its water irrigating the gardens. And this is true. Now Tabuk is what? Does anybody know? How is Tabuk? It's lush. It's green. Hmm? And this is reported in Muslim. So this is one of the miracles. The Prophet ﷺ stayed in Tabuk for 20 days. And uh, while he was there, the Ghatafan tribes never really showed up to fight. And they basically sent their delegates to make peace. So now the Muslims were safe. The duration of this entire journey was about 50 days to reach Tabuk, the 20-day stay over there, and then the return journey from Tabuk was easily 50 days. So if he was staying there for 20 days, how long was he traveling? 30 days. So 15 days, one way. Imagine. It's more than two weeks. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Many lessons from this hadith. First of all, we see that a woman owned a garden. She was farming in her garden. So this means that a woman can be a farmer if she wants to. There's nothing wrong in that. She can own a garden. She can be a farmer. There's nothing wrong in that. There's no ayib in this. Then we see here, of course, the permissibility of doing khars of a crop or a fruit, which is the reason why Imam Bukhari brings this hadith here. And then this also shows us that it is correct to come up with some hypothesis and then test it later on. Because that's what the Prophet ﷺ did here, right? He guessed how much it would be. He, his guess was that it would be 10 awsuq. And then he checked from that woman on the way back that how much was it. Right? So you can... You know, come up with a hypothesis and then test it. There's nothing wrong with that. You're not delving into the unseen. This is permissible. And then you see in, in this story a very normal side of the Prophet ﷺ, right? That he was a prophet, he was a leader. But you can see how he's traveling, he's taking interest in the things that people take interest. You know, he's having a conversation with his companions because when you're traveling, you get bored also, you get tired. Right? So they see the palm trees, they see a garden. They're like, okay, how much do you think? How much do you think? And the Prophet ﷺ also gives his suggestion. And of course, this also shows us about the insight, the observation of the Prophet ﷺ. His guess was right. And remember that the Prophet ﷺ stayed more of his life in Mecca, where people did not have palm trees. Right? So this is amazing that he had so much knowledge that he could just look at the trees and estimate how much the yield would be. Then we see that the Prophet ﷺ informed the people of the coming wind at Tabuk. And this was also one of the miracles given to the Prophet ﷺ. Uh, remember that part of the miracles that the Prophet ﷺ was given was some news of the unseen. Some news of the unseen. Not all of the knowledge of the unseen, only some of it. And this was one of those occasions. In Surah Al-Jinn, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that عَالِمُ الْغَيْبِ فَلَا يُظْهِرُ عَلَى غَيْبِهِ أَحَدًا That Allah is the knower of the unseen and He does not inform anyone about it. إِلَّا مَنِ ارْتَضَى مِنْ رَسُولٍ Except for whoever that He approves of from among His messengers. 
Alright? Meaning to that prophet, then some news of the unseen is given. And that is the case over here. Then we see that the Prophet ﷺ warned the people about the wind and he also told them what to do. What precaution to take. Do not get up, tie your camels. Alright? So he didn't just scare people. He also told them what to do. And this is very important. Don't just frighten people. Even if you're trying to scare them from hellfire, don't just leave them in fear. Give them actual practical solutions and tell them, show them how they can save themselves. And this also shows us that whenever there is a natural disaster or something like that, then uh, you have to uh, take the necessary precaution. Don't say that, no, I'm just going to trust in Allah and I'm going to stand up. And I'm going to go outside. No, the Prophet ﷺ told the people, sit down. Nobody should get up. And the man who disobeyed him, what happened to him? And he also told them to secure their property, their camels. So this is not against the wakul. That if you are securing your property, or if you're taking some precaution to protect yourself, this is not against the wakul. This is part of the wakul. And then we see that the Prophet ﷺ also while he was in Tabuk, he accepted the gift from the king of Ayla. So this shows that gifts should be accepted. The Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, Aisha radhiyallahu anha said that كان رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم يقبل الهدية ويصيب عليها. He would accept gifts and he would also return gifts, meaning not return in the sense that giving it back, but he would also reciprocate. Okay. So this is from the sunnah, that when someone gives you a gift, don't reject it. That no, no, I'm not going to take it because I know your intention and I know that there's something else that you want from me. Don't don't judge people. Accept the gift and then reciprocate also. The Prophet ﷺ also said, تَحَادُّ تَحَابُّ Exchange gifts and uh, because that increases love. And then we see that the Prophet ﷺ was so eager to return to Medina. Because on their way back, when he, you know, after Wadi Al-Qura, he told the people that I'm going to go quickly. So if anyone else wants to come quickly with me, most welcome. Because imagine if it's 10,000 people, of course it would take a really long time. I mean, what happens when you leave the house on your own? How quickly can you leave? And what happens when you have to take maybe one or two more people with you? Then what happens? Do you get delayed? Yeah, easily. It's amazing. When you have to leave the house yourself, you can be up out of your bed and out of the house in 15, 20 minutes maximum. But when you have to take children with you, then hour, two hours, easily. So the Prophet ﷺ wanted to get back to Medina quickly. And, you know, this shows us that yes, you have to travel. You can't avoid that. But that doesn't mean that you drag your travel. Then we see also uh, the name of Medina. Medina is also called Taba. Is there any other name of Medina? Okay, Yathrib was before the Prophet ﷺ came. When he came, he changed Yathrib to Medina. Because Yathrib doesn't have a good meaning. Okay, uh, Medina has a good meaning. Medina means city. And Taba, that's what the Prophet ﷺ called it. What about Tayyiba? Medina to Tayyiba. Hmm? Taba and Tayyiba mean the same thing. Good or pleasant, something sweet or delicious, or something clean, something pure. And in a hadith we learn actually, this hadith is in Muslim, 
that in Allah Ta'ala Sammal Madina Taba. That Allah has named Medina Taba. So we should also refer to that city as Taba. Because Medina means city, that's it. Taba means good and pure and clean, delicious. In another hadith we learned that uh, the Prophet ﷺ said, إِنَّهَا الطَّيْبَةِ يعني المدينة. Then we see that uh, the Prophet ﷺ, he praised the people of Medina. And this is all before he entered Medina. You can see even the small talk was so beneficial. The Prophet ﷺ is praising the Ansar. And he mentioned as to who the best household was and the next best and the next best and this was for a reason. And then at the end, he also said that in all of them is goodness. All of them are good. And this is the Quran, you know, the way of the Quran also, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions the different groups of believers. For example, that those who strive in the way of Allah, their level is not the same as those who stay at home and don't go out in the way of Allah. There is a difference in their level. However, to each Allah has promised a good reward. So the Prophet ﷺ praised the different households of Medina, saying who was the best, and then the next best, and then the next best, and then finally he said that all of them are good. Now, these names that he mentioned specifically, okay, do you recognize these names? What's the first one? Which household? Banu Najjar. What's so special about the Banu Najjar? Any idea? Banu Najjar were related to the Prophet ﷺ also. But remember that they received the Prophet ﷺ when he arrived in Medina. Remember that he reached Quba first, and the Banu Najjar received the Prophet ﷺ, and the men of Banu Najjar were holding their swords. And there was basically an entourage around the Prophet ﷺ when he entered Medina. Okay, And the Banu Najjar were around him. Why? To show that we are supporting him. All right? We are with him. Secondly, remember that uh, the land on which Masjid al-Nabawi is built was the land that belonged to the Banu Najjar. And the Prophet ﷺ wanted to buy that land from Banu Najjar. But the Banu Najjar said, No, لا نطلب ثمنه إلا إلى الله. We only want its price. It's payment from Allah. So imagine, imagine their virtue. Masjid al-Nabawi is built on the land that belonged to Banu Najjar. I mean, this is so honorable. And then another thing is that uh, the Banu Najjar, you know, all of their families sort of lived around each other, close to each other. So you can imagine that if the land on which the masjid was built belonged to them, so where do you think the people of Banu Najjar lived? Nearby. Right, around the masjid. So one of the tallest houses in the area belonged to a lady from the Banu Najjar. And Bilal radiallahu anhu would actually go on the roof of that house in order to make the adhan. So another virtue for the Banu Najjar. Those who go first, become first in reward also. And the Prophet wasallam expressed his love for the Banu Najjar at many occasions. Of the companions that were from Banu Najjar is also Abu Talha radiallahu anhu. 
Remember Abu Talha radiallahu anhu? Now, do you remember Abu Talha's garden? Where was that garden? In front of the masjid. Why? Because this area, all of it, belonged to who? Banu Najjar. So their houses were there, their lands were there, and they're the ones who donated one of their lands to the Prophet ﷺ for the masjid. So Abu Talha radiallahu anhu, also Hassan ibn Sabit radiallahu anhu. Any idea about who he was? Hassan bin Sabit. He was the poet. Zayd ibn Sabit was the scribe. And he was also from Banu Najjar. Zayd bin Sabit, the scribe, he was also from the Banu Najjar. Okay, the second one the Prophet ﷺ mentioned over here are the Banu Abdul Ashhal. The Banu Abdul Ashhal, amongst them were early converts of the first people who embraced Islam. Sa'ad bin Mu'adh radiallahu anhu was from them. Then he mentioned the Banu Sa'idah. Of them was Sahal ibn Sa'ad radiallahu anhu. Then he mentioned the Banu Harith. And remember that the Banu Harith, Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu's family, lived amongst them when they migrated to Medina. And then uh, in this hadith, we also see that the Prophet sallallahu mentioned Mount Uhud. What did he say about Mount Uhud? That it loves us and we love it. How can a mountain love people? Exactly. Everything that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created, everything, does tasbih. وَإِن مِّن شَيْءٍ إِلَّا بِحَمْدِهِ Remember that even non-living things, they are not dead in the sense that they don't feel, they don't know, they don't witness. These things will also be either a witness for us or against us. These things also develop, you know, feelings for people. Remember that in a hadith we learn that once a janazah was being taken and the Prophet ﷺ said, Mustarihun wa mustarahun anhu. That relieved or one being relieved from. And the people said, what do you mean? He said, for a believer, death is a relief. For a believer, death is what? A relief from the problems, the worries, the stresses of this life. But for a wicked person, it's not a relief. It's actually the world, the animals, the trees, the people that are relieved from him. You understand? And in the hadith, the Prophet ﷺ mentioned specifically trees also. So these things, and remember the mimbar of the Prophet ﷺ, right? When it was removed, it wept, it cried like a baby, and, and people heard the noise. And you know, sometimes you also develop a certain attachment to things. You love those things because you use them for a good purpose or somebody gave them to you. You treat it well. So these things, remember, they're of course subservient to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They do tasbih of Allah in a way that we do not comprehend. All right. But they can also either love us or dislike us or be just indifferent to us, depending on how we treat them. And also remember something about Uhud, that Mount Uhud was such that there was a huge tragedy that happened right next to it. Right? What was that tragedy? The Battle of Uhud. Right? When we think about Mount Uhud, what do we think of? The battle. If we ever go to Mount Uhud, what do we look over there? What is it that we look at? It's the graveyard. Right? It's the graves. Look at how the Prophet ﷺ changed something negative to something so positive. That this is a mountain that we love and it loves us. 
And it's so true. I mean, there's some places where because something bad happened, you know, certain feelings are anchored. So every time you go on a certain road, you feel anxious because you had an accident there, right? Or you go on a certain road, you feel upset because you had a fight with someone over there, right? It's so natural. Feelings are associated to places also. Feelings are associated to things also. Your certain clothes, they make you happy. And other clothes, you just don't like them because you wore them to some place and you were humiliated over there. So those feelings are anchored, right? So the Prophet ﷺ changed something negative to something so positive here. I mean, you can see that also. People who actually take care of their plants are very gentle with them. Their plants will look so healthy. And people who neglect their plants as if it's just a dead thing somewhere, then you can see that on the, you know, in the plants also. Anything else you want to mention or you thought from this hadith? Go ahead. When I think of the Battle of the Book, I just think that it's amazing how, I mean, they finally, like, they're finally starting to settle down. They're really excited because, you know, harvest season is coming and like you mentioned, it's in a desert. It's not like this happens all the time. So it's like, but they were still willing to go sacrifice and go out on like a really hot time during the year. And then I think about us and like we barely can pull our bed. Like we were hoping for a snow day. And when we woke up this morning, everybody was like, that canceled. Like, but subhanAllah, the contrast, just that they were willing to, I don't know, despite the fact that they're at the peak of their business, mm-hmm. but they're going out for this battle. And they didn't even really fight. Allah saved them from the fight anyways. Yes. They made peace. Yes. But, but it was such a long journey all the way to the book. And then 20 days there and then back. Anything else? Khars is just an estimation in advance to know, okay, zakat can be expected from here. No zakat can be expected from here because, you know, the trees are not producing anything at all. There's hardly anything growing. But then when the fruit is actually harvested, then it is weighed. When the crop is actually harvested, then it is cleaned, and then the seeds or the grains are weighed, and then zakat is calculated. This is just an estimation to have an idea of what you're expecting. 